Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The Skylark of Space by E.E. E. Doc Smith. Volume 2, Chapter 5. Dr. Mark C. Duquesne was a tall, powerful man, built very much like Richard Seaton. His thick, slightly wavy hair was intensely black. His eyes, only a trifle lighter in shade, were surmounted by thick, black eyebrows, which grew together above his aquiline, finely chiseled nose. His face, although not pale, appeared so because of the heavy black beard always showing through, even after the closest possible shave. In his early thirties, he was widely known as one of the best men in his field. Scott came into his laboratory immediately after the auction, finding him leaning over the console of the Watsitron, his forbidding but handsome face strangely illuminated by the greenish-yellow-blue glare of the machine. Hello, Blackie, Scott said. What do you think of Seaton? Think he's quite right in the head? Speaking offhand, Duquesne replied without looking up, I would say he's been putting in too many hours working and not enough time sleeping. I don't think he's insane. I'd swear in a court of law that he's the sanest crazy man I have ever heard of. I think he's a plain nut myself. That was a Lulu he pulled yesterday. He seems to believe it himself, though. He got them to put that junk solution into the auction this noon, and he and M. Reynolds Crane bid on it for ten cents. M. Reynolds Crane? Duquesne managed to conceal his start of surprise. Where does he come in on this? Oh, he and Seaton have been body-body for a long time, you know, probably humoring him. After they got the solution, they called a cab, and somebody said the address they gave the hacky was Crane's, the other side of Chevy Chase. But, oh, wait, that's my phone ringing. I better go. As Scott left, Duquesne strode over to his desk, a new expression, half of chagrin, half of admiration on his face. He picked up his telephone and dialed a number. Brookings, this is Duquesne. I've got to see you as fast as I can get there. No, we cannot talk on the phone. Yes, I will be right out. He left the laboratory building and was soon in the private office of the head of the Washington, or diplomatic, branch of the immense World Steel Corporation. How are you doing, Dr. Duquesne? Brookings said as he seated his visitor. You seem very excited. Not excited, but in a hurry. The biggest thing in history is just breaking, and we have got to work fast if we want to land it. But before I start, have you any sneaking doubts that I know what I'm talking about? Why, no, Doctor, not the slightest. You're widely known. You have helped us in various dealings, <laughs> matters, you know? Seth Brookings, yes, dealings is right. This is going to be the biggest ever. It should be easy. One simple killing and an equally simple burglary. And it won't mean wholesale murder like that tungsten job. Uh, oh, no, Doctor, they're not murder, uh, accidents. I call things by their right names. I am not squeamish. But what I'm here about is Seton of our division. He has discovered more or less accidentally total conversion of atomic energy. 
And what does that mean? To break it down to where you would understand, it means a billion kilowatts per plant at a total amortized cost of approximately one one hundredth of a mil per kilowatt hour. What? A look of scornful disbelief settled on Brookings' face. Sneer if you like. Your ignorance does not change the facts and does not hurt my feelings a bit. Court Chamberlain, Zin, ask him what would happen if a man should liberate the total energy of a hundred pounds of copper in, say, ten microseconds. Pardon me, doctor. I didn't mean to insult you. Sure, I'll call him in. Brookings called and a man in white appeared. In response to the question, he thought for a moment and then smiled. That's a rough guess. It would blow the whole world into vapor and might blow it clear out of its orbit. However, you should not worry about anything like that happening, Mr. Brookings. It won't. It can't. Why not? Because only two nuclear reactions yield energy. Fission and fusion. Very heavy elements, fission. Very light elements, fusion. Intermediate ones, such as copper, do neither. Any possible operation on the copper atom, such as splitting, must necessarily, must necessarily absorb vastly more energy than it produces. Is this all? That's all. Thanks. So, you see, Brookings said when they were alone again, Chambers is a good man, too. He says it's impossible. As far as he knows, he's cried. I would have said the same thing this morning. However, it has just been done. How? Duquesne repeated certain parts of Seton's story. But suppose the guy is crazy. He could be, couldn't he? Yes, he is crazy. He's crazy like a fox. If it were only Seton, I might buy that. But nobody ever thought M. Reynolds Crane had any screws loose. With him backing Seton, you can bet your last dollar that Seton showed him plenty of real stuff. As a look of conviction appeared upon Brookings' face, Duquesne went on. Do you not understand? The solution was government property, and he had to do something to make everybody think it was worthless so he could get the title to it. It was a bold move. It would have been foolhardy in anyone else. The reason he got away with it is that he's always been known as an open-faced talker, always telling everyone everything he knows. He fooled me completely, and I'm not usually asleep out of bed. Well, what's your idea? Where do we come into this? You come in by getting that solution away from Seton and Crane, and furnishing the money to develop the stuff, and to build, under my direction, such a power plant as the world has never seen before. Why is it necessary to get that particular solution? Why not refine some more platinum wastes? Not a chance. Chemists have been recovering platinum for a hundred years. Nothing like that was ever found before. That stuff, whatever it was, must have been present in some particular lot of platinum. They haven't got all of it there is in the world, of course, but the chance of finding any without knowing exactly what to look for is extremely slight. Besides, we must have a monopoly on it. Crane would be satisfied with 10% net profit. No, we've got to get every milliliter of that solution, and we have got to kill Seton. He knows too much. I want to take a couple of your goons and attend to it tonight. Brookings thought about this for a moment. 
his face blandly empty of expression. Then he spoke. I'm sorry, doctor, but we can't do that. It's too flagrant, too risky. Besides, we can afford to buy it from Seton. If and when he proves it's worth anything. Bah! Duquesne snorted. Who do you think you're kidding? Do you think I've told you enough so that you can sidetrack me out of this deal? Get the idea out of your head fast. There are only two men in the world who can handle it. Seton and me. Take your pick. Put anyone else on it. Anyone. And he will blow himself and his whole neighborhood out beyond the orbit of Mars. Brookings, caught flat-footed and half-convinced of the truth of Duquesne's statements, still temporized. You're very modest, Duquesne. Modesty gets a man praise. I prefer cash. However, you ought to know by this time that what I say is true, and I'm in a hurry. The difficulty of getting hold of that solution is growing greater every minute, and my price is rising every minute. What is your price at the present minute, then? $10,000 per month during development, $5 million cash when the first plant goes onto the line, 10% of the net, on all plants thereafter. Oh, come on, doctor. Let's be sensible. You don't mean that. I do not say anything I do not mean. I have done a lot of dirty work for you people and never got much of anything out of it. I could not force you without exposing myself. But this time, I have got you where the hair is short, and I am going to collect, and you still cannot kill me. I am not Amesworth, not only because you will have to have me, but because it would still send all of your big shots clear down to Perkins, to the chair, or up the river for life. Come on, Duquesne, don't use language like that. Why not? Duquesne's voice was cold and level. What do a few lives amount to, as long as they're not yours or mine? I can trust you more or less, and you can trust me the same, because you know I cannot send you up without going with you. If that's the way you want it, I'll let you try it without me. You won't get very far. So decide right now whether you want me now or later. If it's later... The first two of those figures I gave you will be doubled. Brookings shook his head. We can't do business on terms like that. We could buy the power rights from Seton for less. Ah, you wanted the hardware, huh? Duquesne sneered as he came to his feet. Go ahead, steal the solution. But don't give your man much of it. Not more than half a teaspoonful. I want as much as possible of it left. Set at the laboratory a hundred miles from anywhere. Not that I give a damn how many people you kill, but I don't want to go along. And caution whoever does the work to use very small quantities of copper. Goodbye. As the door closed behind the cynical scientist, Brookings took a small instrument, very much like a watch from his pocket, and touched a button, raised it to his lips, and spoke. Perkins! Yes, sir. M. Reynolds Crane has in or around his house somewhere a small bottle of solution. Yes, sir. Can you describe it, sir? Not exactly. Brookings went on to tell his minion all he knew about the matter. If the bottle were only partly emptied and filled with water, I don't think anybody would notice the difference. 
Probably not, sir. Good boy. Brookings then took his personal typewriter out of the drawer and typed busily for a few minutes. Among other things, he wrote, And do not work with too much copper at once. I gather that an ounce or two should be enough. Chapter 6 From daylight until late in the evening, Seaton worked in the shop, sometimes supervising expert mechanics, sometimes working alone. Every night when Crane went to bed, he saw Seaton in his room in a cloud of smoke, poring over blueprints or seated at the computer, making interminable calculations. Deaf to Crane's remonstrances, he was driving himself at an unhuman rate, completely absorbed in his project. While he did not forget Dorothy, he had a terrific lot to do, and none of it was getting done. He was going to see her just as soon as he was over this hump, he insisted. But every hump was followed by another, higher and worse. And day after day after day went by. Meanwhile, Dorothy was feeling considerably glum. Here was her engagement, only a week old. And what an engagement. Before that enchanted evening, he had been an almost daily visitor. They had ridden and talked and played together, and he had forced his impetuous way into all her plans. Now, after she had promised to marry him, he had called once, at eleven o'clock at night, with his mind completely out of this world, and she hadn't even heard from him in six long days. A queer happening at the laboratory seemed scant excuse for such long-continued neglect, and she knew no other. Puzzled and hurt, her mother's solicitous looks unbearable, she left the house for a long, aimless walk. She paid no attention to the spring beauty around her. She did not even notice the footsteps following her, and she was too deeply engrossed in her own somber thoughts to be more than mildly surprised when Martin Crane spoke to her. For a while, she tried to rouse herself in animation, but her usual ease had deserted her, and her false gaiety did not deceive the keen-minded Crane. Soon they were walking along together in silence. A silence finally broken by the man. I have just left seat, he said, paying no attention to her startled glance. And he went on. Did you ever see anyone else with his singleness of purpose? Of course, though, that is one of the traits that make him what he is. He is working himself into a breakdown. Has he told you about leaving the rare metals laboratory? No. I haven't seen him since the night of the accident, or discovery, or whatever you want to call it happened. He tried to explain it to me, but what little I could understand of what he said sounded just completely preposterous. I can't explain the thing to you. Dick himself can't explain it to me, but I can give you an idea of what we both think it may come to. I wish you would. I'd be mighty glad to hear it. Well, Dick discovered something that converts copper into pure energy. That water bath took off in a straight line, and... That still sounds preposterous, Martin, the girl interrupted, even when you say it. Careful, Dorothy, he cautioned her. Nothing that actually happens is or can be preposterous. But as I said, this copper bath left Washington in a straight line for scenes unknown, and we intend to follow it in a suitable vehicle. He paused, looking at his companion's face. She didn't speak, and he went on in his matter-of-fact tone. 
Building the spaceship was where I come in. As you know, I have almost as much money as Dick has brains. And someday, before the summer is over, we expect to go somewhere. Someplace a considerable distance from this Earth. Then, after enjoining strict secrecy, he told her what he had seen in the laboratory and described the present state of affairs. But if he thought of all that and was brilliant enough to work out such a theory and actually plan such an unheard-of thing as space travel, all on such a slight foundation of fact, well, why couldn't he have told me? He fully intended to. He still intends to. Don't believe for a moment that his absorption implies any lack of love for you. I was coming to visit you about that when I saw you out here. He's driving himself unmercifully. He eats hardly anything and doesn't seem to sleep at all. He has to take it easy or he's going to have a breakdown. But nothing I say has had any effect. Can you think of anything you or you and I together can do? Dorothy still walked along, but it was a different Dorothy. She was erect and springy. Her eyes sparkled. All her charm and vitality were back in force. I'll say I can, she breathed. I'll stuff him to the ears and put him to sleep right after dinner, the big dope. This time it was Crane who was surprised. So surprised he stopped practically in mid-stride. How are you going to do that? he demanded. You talk about something being preposterous. <laughs> How? Maybe you shouldn't know the gory details, she grinned impishly. You lack quite a bit, Marty, of being the world's best actor, and Dick mustn't be warned. Just run along home and be sure you're there when I get there. I've got to do some phoning. I'll be there at six o'clock, and tell Shiro not to make you two any dinner. She was there at six o'clock on the dot. Where is he, Marty? Out in the shop? Yes. In the shop, she strode purposefully towards Seton's oblivious back. Hi, Dick. How's it going? What? He started violently, almost jumping off his stool. Then he did jump off as the knowledge filtered through that it was really Dorothy who was standing at his back. He swept her off her feet in the intensity of his embrace. She pressed her every inch tighter and tighter against his rock-hard body. Their lips met and clung. Dorothy finally released herself enough to look into his eyes. I was so mad at you, Dick. I simply didn't know whether to kiss you or kill you. But I've decided to kiss you this time. I know, sweetheart. I, I've been trying my level best to get a couple of hours to come over and see you, but everything's been going so slow. My head's so thick, it takes a thousand years for an idea to percolate, and... Hush! I've been doing a lot of thinking this week, especially today. I love you as you are. I can either do that or give you up. I can't even imagine giving you up to some other woman. I know I'd cold-bloodedly strangle her with her own hair. Come on, Dick. No more work tonight. I'm taking you and Martin home for dinner. Then, as his eyes strayed involuntarily back toward the computer, she said more forcefully, I said no. No more work tonight. Do you want to fight about it, Dick? Uh, no. I'll say I don't. I, I wasn't even thinking of working. Seton looked panic-stricken. No fights, Dottie. Not with you. Not ever. Not about anything. Believe me. 
I do love her. And arms around each other, they strolled unhurriedly up to and into the house. Crane accepted enthusiastically, for him, the invitation to dinner and was going to dress, but Dorothy wouldn't have it. This is strictly informal, she insisted. You're going to come just as you are. I'll wash up then and be with you in a second, Seaton said and left the room. Dorothy turned to Crane. I've got a huge favor to ask, Martin. I drove the Cadillac. It's air-conditioned, you know. Could you possibly bring your Stradivarius along? My best violin would be okay, I'm sure, but I'd rather have the heaviest artillery I can get. Well, I see at last. Crane's face lit up. Certainly, Dorothy. Play it outdoors in the rain, if necessary. It's a masterful strategy. Just masterful. Well, one does what one can, Dorothy murmured in mock modesty. Then as Seaton appeared, she said, Let's go, boys. Dinner is served at 7.30 sharp, and we're going to be there right on the chime. As they sat down at the table, Dorothy studied again the changes the six days had made in Seaton. His face was pale and thin, almost haggard. Lines had appeared at the corners of his eyes and around his mouth, and faint but unmistakable blue rings encircled his eyes. You've been going at it altogether too hard, Dick. You've got to cut back. No, I'm fine. I've never felt better in my life, Dorothy. I could whip a rattlesnake and give him the first bite. She laughed, but the look of concern didn't leave her face. During the meal, no mention was made of the project, the conversation being deftly held to tennis, swimming, and other sports. And Seaton, whose plate was unobtrusively kept full, ate such a dinner as he had not eaten in weeks. After dessert, they all went to the living room and ensconced themselves in comfortable chairs. The men smoked. All five continued their conversation. After a time, three left the room. Vainman took Crane into his study to show him a rare folio. Mrs. Vainman went upstairs, remarking plaintively that she just had to finish writing an article, and if she put it off much longer, she would never get it done. Dorothy said, I skipped practice today, Dick, on account of traipsing out there after you two geniuses. Could you stand it, having me play for half an hour? Don't fish, Dottie Dimple. You know there's nothing better I would like. But if you want me to beg you, I'll be glad to. Please, O oh fair and musicianly damsel, fill ye circumambient atmosphere with thy tuneful notes. Okay, she snickered. Roger Wilco, over and out. She took up a violin, Crane's violin, and she played. First his favorites, crashing selections from operas, and solos by the great masters, abounding in harmonies on two strings. Then she slowly changed her playing to softer, simpler melodies, then to old, old songs. Seaton, listening with profound enjoyment, relaxed more and more. Pipe finished and hands at rest, his eyes closed on themselves, and he lay back at ease. The music changed again, gradually, to reveries, each one softer and slower and dreamier than the last, then to sheer, crooning lullabies 
and it was in these that that magnificent instrument and the consummate artist combined to show their true qualities at their very best. Dorothy diminuendoed the final note into silence and stood there, bow poised, ready to resume, but there wasn't any need. Freed from the tyranny of the brain that had been driving him so unmercifully, Seton's body had begun to make up for many hours of lost sleep. Assured that he was really asleep, Dorothy tiptoed to the door of the study and whispered, He's asleep in his chair. I believe that, her father smiled. That last one was like a bottle of Veronal. It was all Crane and I could do to keep each other awake. You're a very smart girl. She's a musician. And what a musician, Crane said. It was partly me, of course, but that violin. Wow. But what are we going to do with him? Let him sleep there? No, he'd be more comfortable on the couch. I'll get him a couple of blankets, Vainman said. He did so, and the three went into the living room together. Seaton lay motionless, only the lifting and falling of his powerful chest showing that he was alive. You take his... Shh, shh, Dorothy whispered intensely. You'll wake him up. Bosh, you couldn't wake him up now with a club. You take his head and shoulders, Crane. Come on, heave whole. With Dorothy anxiously watching the proceedings and trying to help, the two men picked Crane up out of the seat and carried him across the room to the couch. They removed his outer clothing. The girl arranged pillows and tucked blankets around him, then touched her lips lightly to his. Good night, sweetheart, she whispered. His lips responded faintly to her caress. Good he murmured faintly in his sleep. It was three o'clock in the afternoon when Seaton, looking vastly better, came into the shop. When Crane saw him and called out a greeting, he returned it with a sheepish grin. Don't say a word, Martin. I'm thinking it all. And then some. I never felt so cheap in my life as when I woke up on the Vainman's couch this afternoon. Were you help put me, no doubt? Uh, no doubt at all, Crane agreed cheerfully. And listen to this. More of the same or worse, if you keep going on as you have been. Martin, don't rub it in. Can't you see I'm flat on my back with all four paws in the air? I'll be good. I'm going to bed at eleven every night, and I'm going to go see Dottie every other evening, and all day Sunday. Very fine, if it's true. It had better be true. It will, so help me. While I was eating breakfast this morning, well, this afternoon, actually, I saw that missing factor in the theory. And don't tell me it was because I was rested up and fresh, either. I know it. I was refraining heroically from mentioning the fact. Yeah, thanks a lot. Well, the naughty point, you remember, was... What could be the possible effect of a small electric current in liberating the power? I think I've got it. It must shift the epsilon gamma zeta plane. And if it does, the rate of liberation must be zero when the angle theta is zero. And it must approach infinity as theta approaches pi over two. It does not, Crane contradicted flatly. It can't. The orientation of that plane is fixed by temperature by nothing except temperature. 
That's right, usually. But that's where X comes in. Here, take a look, it's the proof. On and on the argument raged. Reference works littered the table and overflowed onto the floor. Scratch paper grew into piles. Two computers ran almost continuously. Since the mathematical details of the Seton Crane effect are of little or no interest here, it will suffice to mention a few of the conclusions at which the men finally arrived. The power could be controlled. It could drive or pull a spaceship. It could be used as an explosive, in violence ranging from that of a 20-millimeter shell up to any upper limit desired, however fantastic when expressed in megatons of TNT. There were many other possibilities inherent in their final equations, possibilities which the men did not at that time explore. Chapter 7 Say, Blackie, Scott called from the door of Duquesne's laboratory. Did you get the news flash that just came over TV? It's right down your alley. No, what about it? Somebody piled up a million tons of TNT, picric acid, nitroglycerin, and so forth, up in the hills, and then touched it off, bluey. The whole town of Bankerville, West Virginia, Population 200 is gone. No survivors, no debris. The man said, just a hole in the ground, a couple of miles in diameter. God only knows how deep. Baloney, Duquesne snapped. What would anybody be doing with an atomic bomb up there? That's the funny part of it. It wasn't an atomic bomb. There's no radioactivity anywhere. Not even a trace. Just... Skillions and millions of tons of high explosive, and nobody can figure it. All the scientists are baffled, the TV said. How about you, Blackie? Are you baffled too? I would be, if I believed any part of it. Duquesne turned back to his work. Well, don't blame me for it. I'm just telling you what Fritz Hobbelman just said on television. Since Duquesne showed no interest at all in his news, Scott wandered away. Duquesne muttered to himself, The fool did it. Well, that will kill him. I hope. Fool. He picked up his telephone. Operator, this is Duquesne speaking. I am expecting a call here this afternoon. Please have the party call me at home. Lincoln 64620. He left the building and got his car out of the parking lot. In less than half an hour, he reached his house on Park Road, overlooking beautiful Rock Creek Park, in which he lived alone save for an elderly colored couple who were his servants. In the busiest part of the afternoon, Chambers rushed unannounced into Brookings' private office, his face white, a newspaper in his hand. Read that, Mr. Brookings, he gasped. Brookings read, face turning gray. Ours, of course. Us, yes, Chambers agreed dully. What an idiot! Didn't I tell him to only work with small quantities? I did tell him that. He said not to worry. He was taking no chances. He wouldn't have more than one gram of copper on hand at once in the whole laboratory. Well, 
I'll be jiggered. Turning slowly to the telephone, Brookings called a number and asked for Dr. Duquesne. Then he called another. This is Brookings. I'd like to see you as soon as possible. I'll be there in about an hour. Goodbye. Brookings arrived and was shown into Duquesne's study. The two men shook hands perfunctorily and sat down. The scientist waited for the other to speak. You were right, doctor. A man couldn't handle it. I have the contracts here, Brookings said. At twenty and ten, Duquesne's lips smiled, a cold, hard smile. Twenty and ten, yeah, the company pays for its mistakes. Here you go. Duquesne glanced over the documents and thrust them into his pocket. I'll go over them with my attorney tonight, and I will mail a copy back to you if he says I should sign. In the meantime, we may as well get started. What do you suggest? First, the solution. You stole it, I assume, and... Don't use that kind of language, doctor. Why not? I'm for direct action. First, last, and all the time. This thing is too important to mince words. Have you got it with you? Yeah, here it is. And the rest of it? All that we found is here, except for half a teaspoon our expert had in his laboratory. We didn't get it all, only half of it. The rest was diluted with water so it wouldn't be missed. We can get the rest of it later. That'll cause a disturbance, but it may become half of it. You do not have a twentieth of it here. Seaton had about 400 milliliters. A pint. I wonder, who's holding out on or double-crossing whom? No, no, not... No, not you, he went on as Brookings protested innocence. That wouldn't make sense. Your thief turned in only this much. Could he be holding out on us? No, that makes no sense. No, you know Perkins... His crook missed the main battle then. That's where your methods give me an acute bellyache. When I want anything done, I will do it myself. But it isn't too late yet. I'll take a couple of your goons tonight and go out there. And do what exactly? Shoot Seaton, open the safe, take their solution. Plans, notes, loose cash, of course. I'll give that to the goons. No, no, doctor, come on, that's too crude. I could permit that only as a last possible resort. I say do it first. I'm afraid of pussyfooting and gumshoeing around Seaton and Crane. Seaton has developed a lot of late, and Crane was never anyone's fool. They're a hard combination to beat, and we've done plenty worse and gotten away with it. Why not work it out from the solution we've got, and then get the rest of it? Then if Seaton had an accident, we could prove that we discovered the stuff long before. Because development work on that stuff is risky, as you found out. Also, it would take too much time. Why should we go to all that trouble and expense when they've got the worst of it done? The police may stir around for a few days, but they won't know anything or find out anything. No one will suspect anything except Crane, if he is still alive and he won't be able to do anything about it. And so the argument raged on. Brookings agreed with Duquesne in aim, but he would not sanction his means, holding out for quieter, more devious, 
less actionable methods. Finally, he ended the discussion with a flat refusal and called Perkins and told him of the larger bottle of solution, instructing him to secure it and to bring back all plans, notes, and other material pertaining to the matter at hand. Then, after giving Duquesne an instrument like the one he himself carried, Brookings took his leave. Late in the afternoon of the day of the explosion, Seaton came up to Crane with a mass of notes in his hand. I've got some of it, Mart. The power is what we figured. Anything you want, short of infinity. I've got the three answers you wanted most. First, the transformation is complete. No loss, no residue, no radiation or other waste. Thus, no danger and no shielding or other protection is necessary. Second, X acts only as a catalyst, and it's not consumed. So, an infinitesimal thin coating is all that's necessary. Third, the power is exerted as a pull along the axis of the X figure, whatever that figure is, focused at infinity. I also investigated those two borderline conditions. In one, it generates an attractive force focused on the nearest object in line with its axis of X, in the second, it's an all-out repulsion. That's splendid, Dick, Crane thought for a minute. Data enough, I think, to go ahead on. I particularly like that first borderline case. You could call it an object compass. Focus one on the Earth, and we could always find our way back here, no matter how far away we got. Hey, that's right. I never thought of anything like that. But what I came over to tell you was that I've got a model built that'll handle me like small change. It's got more oomph than a ramjet, small as it is. Ten Gs at least. You want to see it in action? I certainly do. As they were walking out toward the field, Shiro called to them, and they turned back toward the house, learning that Dorothy and her father had just arrived. Hello, boys. Dorothy smiled radiantly, her dimples very much in evidence. Dad and I came out to see how, well, and what you're doing. You came at exactly the right time, Crane said. Dick has built a model and was just about to demonstrate it. Come and watch. On the field, Seaton buckled on a heavy harness, which carried numerous handles, switches, boxes, and other pieces of apparatus. He snapped the switch of the Watsitron. He then moved a slider on a flashlight-like tube, which was attached to the harness, by an adjustable steel cable, which he was gripping with both hands. There was a creak of straining leather, and he shot into the air for a couple hundred feet, where he stopped and remained motionless for several seconds. Then he darted off, going forward, backward, up and down. He described zigzags and loops and circles and figure eights. After a few minutes of this display, he came down in a power dive, slowing up spectacularly to a perfect landing. There, beauteous damsel and esteemed sirs, he began with a low bow, and then there was a sharp snap and he was jerked sideways off his feet. In the flourish, his thumb had moved the slider a fraction of an inch and the power tube had torn itself out of his grasp. It was now out at the full length of the cable, dragging him helplessly after it, straight toward a high stone wall. But Seaton was helpless only for a second. Throwing his body sideways and reaching out along the taut cable, he succeeded in swinging the thing around so he was galloping back toward the party and the field. 
Dorothy and her father were standing motionless, staring. Crane was running toward the shop. Don't touch that switch, Seaton yelled. I'll handle the bloody thing myself. At this evidence that Seaton thought himself master of the situation, Crane began to laugh. But he held one finger lightly on the Whatsitron switch, and Dorothy, relieved of her fear, burst into a fit of giggles. The bar was straight out in front of him, going somewhere faster than a man could normally run, swinging now right, now left, as his weight was thrown from one side to the other. Seaton, dragged along like a boy, holding onto a runaway calf by the tail, was covering the ground in prodigious leaps. At the same time, he was pulling himself hand over hand toward the tube. He reached it and grabbed it in both hands, again darted into the air and came down lightly near the others, who were rocking with laughter. I said it would be undignified, said Seaton, somewhat short of breath but laughing too, but I didn't think it would end up like this. Dorothy seized his hand. Are you hurt anywhere, Dick? Uh, nope, not a bit. I was scared green until you told Martin to lay off, but it was funny then. How about doing it again, and I'll shoot it in full color? Dorothy, her father chided, next time might not be funny at all. There'll be no next time for this rig, Seaton declared. From here we ought to be able to go to a full-scale ship. Dorothy and Seaton set out toward the house, and Vainman turned to Crane. What are you going to do with it commercially? Dick, of course, hasn't thought of anything except his spaceship. Equally, of course, you have. Crane frowned. Yes, I've had a crew of designers working for weeks, and units of half million to a million kilowatts. We could sell power for a small fraction of a mill. However, the deeper we go into it, the more likely it appears that it will make all big central power plants obsolete. How could that be? Individual units on individual spots. But it will be some time yet before we have enough data for the machines to work on. The evening passed rapidly. As the guests were getting ready to leave, Dorothy asked, What are you going to call it? You both have called it 40 different things this evening, and none of them were right. Why, spaceship, of course, Seaton said. Oh, I didn't mean the class. I meant this particular one. Here's a possible name for her. The Skylark. Exactly right, Dorothy. I love it, Crane said. Perfect, Seaton applauded. And you'll christen it, Dottie, with a 50-liter flask full of hard vacuum. I christen thee the Skylark. Bang. As an afterthought, Vainman pulled a newspaper out of his pocket. Oh, yes, I bought a clarion on our way out here. It tells about an extraordinary explosion. At least the story is extraordinary. It may not be true, but I'm sure it'll make interesting reading for you two scientific chaps. Good night. Seaton walked Dorothy to the car. When he came back, Crane handed him the paper without a word. It's X, all right. Not even a clarion reporter could dream that one up. Some poor devil tried it without my rabbit's foot in his pocket. But think about this, Dick. Something is very seriously wrong. Two people did not discover X at the same time. Someone stole your idea. But the idea is worthless without the metal. Where did he get it? Well, that's right. The stuff is really rare. In fact, 
It isn't supposed to even exist. I'd bet everything I own that we had every microgram of it known to science. Well, then, said the practical crane, we'd better find out if we have all we started with. The storage bottle was still almost full, its seal unbroken. The vial was apparently exactly as Seaton had left it. Seems to be all here, Crane said. It can't be, Seaton declared. It's too rare. Coincidence can't go that far. I can tell by taking densities. He did so, finding that the solution in the vial was only half as strong as that of the reserve bottle. That's it, Mart. Somebody stole half of this vial, but he's gone where the... Say, you don't suppose... I do indeed, just that. And the difficulty will lie in finding out which one among the dozens of outfits who would want the stuff is the one who actually got it. Check. The idea was, must have been taken from a demonstration, or rather, one man knew from the wreckage in your laboratory that the demo would not have failed had all the factors then operative been present. Who was there? There were lots of people around at one time or another, but your specifications narrow the field to five guys, Scott, Smith, Penfield, Duquesne, and Roberts. Huh. Let's see. If Scott's brain was solid cyclonite, the detonation wouldn't crack his skull. Smith is a pure theoretician. Penfield wouldn't dare quote an authority without asking permission. Duquesne is... Uh, that is, Duquesne isn't... I mean... Duquesne, Duquesne then is the number one suspect. But wait, I didn't say. Exactly, and that makes him the number one suspect. Crane picked up his telephone and dialed. This is Crane. Please give me a complete report on Dr. Mark C. Duquesne of the Rare Metals Laboratory as soon as possible. Yes, full coverage. No, no limit. And please send two or three guards out here right now men you can trust. Thanks very much. <laughs>